Alright, so here's going to be our plan this morning. Our plan this morning will be to, um, we're going to do our lesson first because we've got lots to go through with Ephesians 5 this morning. And then um, we may just at the end turn our homework in from last time. Your homework last time was, was not so much discussion that we'll talk about, but it may be something you just want to hand in and and uh, we'll be done. Um, but uh, before we do all of that, I want to run through those build disciplines on the back of your notebook. So let's take a look at them one more time. And um, let's see, if I remember right, if I looked at the schedule right, your calendar right, we um, have this today on the home, on Ephesians 5. And then I think we, don't we just have only four left? I think we do the three hermeneutics, and then we do the one on the vision and the purpose. Yeah. And that one with the vision and the purpose is going to be uh, combined with the ladies who are in Wellspring. And we'll be over in Barnes Hall on that last one um, together for that one. That's lots of fun when we get everybody in the same room together. Um, So the next three are going to be really important ones. I really encourage you to uh, make sure that you come for those. Um, we'll, We'll give you kind of an introduction to how to interpret the Bible, and um, I think it'll help you to see, identify some things that we do whenever we have our Bibles open. We move from left to right in our Bibles and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, we're, we're winding up the year. Only four more times left together. Um, so thanks for being faithful and uh, being here. And it all starts with the heart, right? Um You must bring your heart into contact with God through your time in the Word. God revealed Himself there more clearly than He has revealed Himself anyplace else. Um, And therefore, you must draw near to God to meet Him there. If you couldn't be with um, your wife for a long period of time, but she wrote letters to you, that would be the, the greatest revelation of her that you could have. And so you would treat those letters not as grammatical exercises, syntactical. You wouldn't do, look at for syntactical relationships, how are phrases and clause related to each other. That, that would be important, but it wouldn't be primary. You wouldn't analyze merely her use of the present tense compared to the use of the past tense. Um, now all that's important when you study, but if you go after that kind of stuff first and most without going after those words in order to see who God is, something's really wrong. And um, we need to be men who are passionately pursuing God because, well, just just because He's God and what He has done for us and who He is to us. And and so you shepherd your heart to the Word of God in order to meet with God there in the Word, right? That's the fountain of everything. If you are that kind of man, um, God will use you in significant ways in life, in in your family, in anybody's life. That's that's the kind of man that you want broken, lost rebels coming into contact with, right? That's the kind of man you and I must be. The first place that needs to be impacted by that kind of a life that you are living in pursuit of God is the people that you live with in your household. Um, and we've talked about this um, from the youngest age 
up junior high and high school on up. I don't know what it is with with uh, being a, a young man, but we we, we want to get away from our homes and we want to get to the people who are outside our households. We quickly become convinced in junior high and high school that all of the people on the inside of your house are the dumb ones and all the people on the outside are the are the smart ones, the better ones, the cooler ones, the, the ones to spend time with, the ones to invest in. And we just kind of perpetually run away from our households. We deceive ourselves into thinking that when we are courting, dating, the girl that's going to become our wives, oh, I would never do that with her. But it doesn't take long, does it? To, to get married and realize that, um, the, that wow, you, just, you're, you find yourself still doing the same thing. And why is that? I think it's just because that's sinful nature. I think it's because God puts a priority on household relationships and therefore sin doesn't. And that nature within you, that propensity to rebel against God, finds you, leads you to want to also diminish those household relationships. So this takes discipline. All these things take discipline. They don't naturally happen. Uh, In heaven, um, yes. Here, no. Um, that's part of that mixed condition that we have, right? Remember from talking about that last time? Once you are caring for your heart in the right way and you're caring for those in your household, well, um, you should step into the lives of anybody and everybody you can within the church and outside the church in order to care for them with the gospel. Um, it is not a, a strictly sequential that you can't move from discipline one, the heart, to discipline two until you've graduated from discipline one as if you'll ever be done shepherding your heart and you're doing it perfectly. And then you can't step into people's lives until you've graduated from uh, you know, shepherding your home well and you never have to worry about that again. No, but there is a priority, right? Um, and so in, in working from your heart to your home to the outside uh, in terms of ministering to people, you demonstrate to those that you're ministering to that, that there's integrity in your life. That you are, what they see in you out there is what you are at home and with your relationships there, the people that you're closest with. Um, so that's discipline three. Discipline four is is the, the elders here encouraging you to evaluate your life prayerfully um, with the deacon qualifications primarily and then the um, elder qualifications too. But we start with the deacon qualifications. Um, and so we spend a little bit of time focusing on that. Discipline five is on the hermeneutic. That's what we're going to be talking about the next three times together. Um, It's so important that you as a man of God know how to rightly handle God's word, that you can interpret it well, that you have a good answer for why. For instance, in Leviticus 19, um, when it says love your neighbor, that you have a category for that as a Christian man. Love your neighbor. That's, I understand that. And a few verses later when it says, don't wear clothing with mixed fibers and don't sow seed in your field that's mixed with other kinds of seed, you need to have a good answer for why we pay attention to the one and why we don't pay attention to the other as Christians. And pay attention in the sense that we don't put ourselves under it, right? We don't obligate ourselves by it. You need to have good answers for things like that because I'll guarantee you if you have not been asked that by your kids, you will be asked that by your kids. You will be asked by that by somebody in your small group. You will come across somebody in your small group who will have bound their conscience, for example, to something in Mosaic Law or something in the Old Testament or they'll apply something directly from the Old Testament in a way that'll make you go, 
doesn't seem right. You need to have a good answer for that. You're the man. You're a leader. We want you to be equipped to be able to interpret God's word well, and and we'll give you some basics on that as we get started. And H3 is really, builds on that, uh, tries to draw a lot more of that out. And every summer, too, if you have been um, through Build, and if you've been through H3, um, we offer every summer a hermeneutics class. It's about six weeks, and it's pretty intense. I think we meet twice a week in the mornings early for a couple hours, kind of like what Build is, but twice a week. Um, and there's a lot of homework and there's a lot of papers to write for six weeks. But if you've been through Build and you've gone through H3, um, that hermeneutics class will really go in-depth. It's basically trying to take a, a semester's of hermeneutics from a, a seminary, and, and we just try to give it to you all as fast as we can in six weeks. Um, and... Uh, it's a it's a great class. Smet and I kind of team teach it, and um, it, it's a blast. Um, so I encourage you to be thinking about that if that's something you're more and more interested in. The last discipline is you're not at any church. You're at Grace Bible Church, and so you need to know what um, we have put in front of us as a church in regards to our vision and our purpose. Um, we have a biblical vision, but then we have a gospel purpose. Biblical in the sense of from front first page of the Bible all the way to the last page of the Bible. We want to put our vision on the Bible. We want to put our sights on the Bible. Um, And so we try to summarize in a simple way what we think the Bible's message predominantly is. Now, anytime you try to summarize the Bible's message, you're going to leave some really important things out, aren't you? We just can't summarize it all and say it all. But the way that we've tried to do that is with the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian, putting an emphasis on God. It's a God-centered vision. It's not a man-centered doing kind of vision. We're trying to set our sights on God in, in the Bible. So, really, our biblical vision lines up with discipline one and build. When we look at the Bible, we're thinking about who God is. How has he revealed himself to be? Well, the Father is the God of glory. Uh, his glory came to a climax in the cross of his Son, and all of that is so that we might be changed and saved by the Holy Spirit, right? That then leads us to something that's very specific within the Bible. It's often called the crown jewel of the Bible, and that's the gospel. The gospel is the crown jewel of the Bible. And so then we live out a gospel purpose. We are not believers who live um, under Noah's regulations that God gave to him. We're not believers who live under Abraham's uh, regulations that he was given. We don't live under Israel's uh, unique revelation and regulation from God. We live under the revelation and the regulation of Jesus in the church. And specifically for us, that's gospel regulation and gospel revelation for us. That's not to say that the gospel wasn't in the Old Testament. It was. But it was also revealed with regulations that were unique to Israel and, and other uh, and prior to Israel. So we are in a unique period in God's redemptive history, and we then constrain ourselves to the gospel and what the gospel calls us to do and, and be, and that is to draw in with the gospel, to build one another up with the gospel, and to be sent out with the gospel for the sake of uh, the salvation of sinners until Jesus comes back. So there you go. There's our, our six disciplines. Um, I want to keep those in front of you all the time. Um, when you keep these things in front of you like this, um, you immediately have a place to begin in caring for other men in the church, 
for caring for anybody, for caring for your children, for caring for your wife, caring for roommates, caring for anybody. The first place you can begin is, hey, tell me about how how's your heart. What are you doing with your heart these days? How are you caring for your soul these days? Um, what role does the Word of God play in that care that you are offering and giving to yourself? Um, you begin there. You never want to leapfrog that with somebody else, right? Um, talk about how's it going in your home? How are you, how are you doing with your relationships? So build equips you not just to, to shepherd your own heart well and shepherd your own life well, but build equips you to shepherd other people. Um, so I just want to encourage you to, to apply these things. Take these out into your meetings and your, your small group with other people and care for people with these, these disciplines. All right. Any other any questions, comments on this? No? All right. Do you have your handout from back there at the table? Make sure you have one of those. I want to show you your homework first. You can take the blue sheet. The blue sheet. And you will be absolutely overwhelmed because you have 50 ways to love your wife. That's not the Paul Simon song. Okay. For those of you under the age of 24... Um, the, the blue homework sheet this time is, is not so much like, look, you have to go do this with you know your wife right away. Um, but this is a resource for you to begin to have this be homework for the rest of your life with your wife. Um, questions for you to go through. Uh, you can sit with your wife and have your wife rank you um, from a one to a four if you meet the need. Um, you are working to meet the need. This need is not being met. This is not a need. Um, you can go through that with her. Questions a husband should ask on the back side. Um, Tom Eng said gave me these, and, and these are just excellent. To, to a great resource to have. Sitting with a guy who's having a hard time in his marriage, being challenged. This would be a good thing to sit with and go through with him. So that's just a resource for you. Okay. Um, all right. Why don't you take your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians 5, and we're going to do a little something different with Ephesians 5, rather than working through it verse by verse, I'll let you go do that on your own, Um, as you listen, maybe you can go back and listen to the sermon we did, or the sermons we did on that section, but we're going to make some observations from the text in Ephesians 5, so as we turn there... As usual, before we jump into God's Word, what do we want to do? We want to pray. You need to do this before you um, spend your own time in God's Word. As you open your own Bible, uh, you should pray. When you're studying, um, we want to pray. We want to ask for help. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to be here and to be in your Word. I pray, Lord, that you would Um, Humble us under your word, that you would humble me under your word, that your word would speak clear and authoritatively over us, that we would see the wisdom of it, that we would um, see how beneficial it is to live under your word, that when it says to love our wives as Christ loved the church, I pray that we would not argue with you about that, 
that we would not debate you, that we would not try to find exceptions, but that we would be soft and pliable this morning and, just, and simply receive it and be teachable. So Heavenly Father, we ask for you to come with the fullness of your spirit to make us that kind of a man under your word. And um, we pray that our lives would benefit greatly. And for those of us who are not yet married, Lord, I pray that you would make these young men into the kind of man they need to be. I pray, Lord, that they would be more consumed by the kind of man they must be than finding the right kind of woman. That's important too, but what they can control more than anything is the kind of man they will be. So, Father, please work in them and um, give us uh, great fellowship this morning under your word. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Several different um, things we're going to talk about this morning. Roman numeral one at the top is going to be just the husband's love for his wife is to be five things. We'll fill in the blanks there in a moment. Roman numeral two is we'll talk about this kind of love requires study. The kind of love that we are supposed to give to our wives requires you and I to actually study our wives. Thirdly, Roman numeral three, this this kind of love requires planning. That's right, planning. You've got to plan to love this way. Fourthly, this kind of love gets practical across all categories of life, and that's where we'll spend a good portion of our time just walking through about 15 different arenas of the marriage relationship. And then lastly, this kind of love must be full of joy. How sad it would be if, if our wives saw us laboring in love and doing it with a this is just really hard loving you honey that'd be really a bummer wouldn't it for your wife to make that conclusion Um, when she looks at Jesus in the scriptures laying himself out in love for her as her savior what does she see in him as he does such kind of love Um, not complaining and so it'd be good for us to Be more like Christ in that way. So let's start with number one this morning. The husband's love for his wife is to be, number one, Christ-centered. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So to begin with, your love for your wife, my love for my wife, your love for your wife someday is to bear the mark of Jesus' love, the characteristic of Jesus' love for the church. And Notice, you'll find this oftentimes in, in context where it's, it's, it's describing God's love. You'll find the word gave nearby. Do you see that in verse 25? Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Can you think of another verse in the Bible, probably one of the most famous, where you see love and gave together? God so loved the world that he what? Gave. This is what God does when he loves. His love is marked by self-giving. So if you're going to love like Christ love in a Christ-centered way, you are going to give yourself away. You're going to give of yourself. You're going to empty yourself out. You're going to sacrifice yourself. There is a high price to pay. It's costly to love like Jesus loved. And of course, the place where we see his ultimate giving of self is where? At the cross. He gave himself up for her, and that's language about the cross. 
So one of the best things you can do to fortify and equip yourself to prepare yourself to love your wife is to actually study Jesus and his sacrificial death and his love for the church. In Scripture, as you focus on the gospel, one of the benefits is you're learning, you're observing how Jesus gave of himself in love for his elect. That equips you to love your wife. It's, it's got great preparation for you. Um, it's important to look at passages that talk about um, Christ's love for you. Let me give an example. Galatians 2.20. I have been, how's it go? Crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, what? Loved me and gave. There it is again, love and gave, right? He loved me and gave himself up for me. As you meditate on that and you are moved by that to worship and honor God and to fear him, you need to be thinking, that's what I must be for my wife. Not a savior. I can't be a savior. But I need to love in such a way that I give myself up for her in that way. If you just go back to Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, look at this. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And here it is again. Gave himself up for us. Do you see that? Love and gave. He loved and he gave himself up for us. And it's not two different things. He loved and then later separated from that new idea he gave himself up for. No, it means he loved. And let me tell you what I mean by that. He gave himself up for us. As an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's what it means. You need to focus on that. That will prepare you to love your wife. So as you meditate on these, your heart and your mind will be full of fuel to love your wife practically with the same kind of love. So a husband's love for his wife is to be first and foremost Christ-centered. Number two, a husband's love for his wife is to be God-centered. Now I'm not trying to... um, say Christ isn't God here or any of that. But God-centered as opposed to husband-centered or even wife-centered. You and I are to love our wives with God centrally in mind, not yourself in mind first, and not even ultimately your wife in mind first. Now, of course, your wife is on your mind as you're loving her. But let me, let me help you understand. Let, let me just give you the basic idea here. I'll, I'll give it to you with, a, with an illustration. I've seen this in parenting before um, in, in trying to help young parents um, whose little ones are now becoming toddlers who are becoming these little amazing, excited little wills running around that they cannot control. Okay. What, what parents often find is they reach a point of exasperation and what, what they recognize is that, oh my goodness, I have been child-centered in my parenting. I conduct all of my parenting with my child as the center of the universe and whatever it is my child wants and needs, that's just what I direct my parenting toward. And so it's child-centered parenting. Oh my goodness, I'm, no wonder I'm going crazy. 
I'm letting a three-year-old dictate what my parenting is. Now, here's what often happens, and there's even books out there that do this, and, and, and they, they, they point that out as bad as it is, not helpful as it is. Um, and they go all the way to the other side, and so guess what kind of centered parenting it is? Parent-centered parenting. And it even sounds right at first. Of course, I'm the parent. So I'm going to parent in such a way where I'm the center of it and I, I care for my children that way. But hang on, be very careful. That's not even what God calls you to do in your parenting. Our parenting is to be God-centered parenting. Listen, when your little one grows up and leaves the home and they think back and reflect on the way that you parented, do you really want them to think about you, most of all? You want them to think about God, most of all, when they think about the way that you parented them. So you don't parent in a way that primarily focuses on the child or has a child at the center of, of, of the parenting. You don't even parent in such a way that everything is about you as the parent. You parent in such a way that everything is about God. And what that does is that puts the child's needs... Now you, you, you focus on the child the right way. I'll give the child what God says the child needs, not just what the child says the child needs. And, and when you focus with God-centered parenting, you put yourself in the right place. Yes, I am the one who has been given authority by God. And I will act as such. But I will not make my I will not even create any confusion in my child's mind as if I'm in a higher place than that. You see, when you become God-centered in your parenting, you see the child rightly, you see yourself rightly, you both give yourselves the proper roles. Now, apply the same thing to marriage. It is if you do nothing, guys, if you don't think about this, if you don't plan, guess which kind of husbanding you'll do first. You'll do husband-centered love. That's what you'll be. You'll be husband-centered in your love. You will love your wife and who you'll be thinking about most. Who, who was going to benefit from that kind of love the most? You'll love her in a way that always has a connection back to you. If you do nothing, that's what you would love your wife with, husband-centered love. And so you might think, oh, the thing I need to do is I'm going to react against that. I'm going to go all the way over to the other party in the marriage relationship. And so I'm going to be wife-centered in my parenting or in my husbanding or in the marriage relationship, right? And that's where you have to be really, really careful because the only way that you will be right and pleasing to God in wife-centered love is if your wife's view of herself and what she wants equals what? God's view of what... And if she's like you, and if you're like me, how often do you uh, see yourself rightly and want only what God wants for your life? I don't know about you, but I mean, I see that falling quite a bit short in my own life, and, and it happens in my wife's too. And so I don't want to love her in such a way that is rooted and dictated by everything she wants because she doesn't always even want the right things. So I want to be God-centered in my love for my wife. Because when I'm God-centered, then I see her rightly. She is the object of my love. Just like the church was the object, object of Jesus' love. I will focus on her rightly. But I will also view myself rightly. 
I won't put myself higher than I should, and I won't put myself lower than I should. I won't put myself at the center of things if I love her as um, with God at the center of everything. Listen, when your wife walks away from an expression of love from you, whom do you want her thinking of most? Just ask, answer that question. Herself? You? God. So figure out what it means to love her with God at the center. You want her walk to, walking away going, I thought I knew what I needed just then. But you know what? I find out that my husband knew what I needed most. And it wasn't even him. It was God. God-centered love. That is what is going on in this passage. This passage in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 22, all the way down to verse 33, it puts God's purpose central. It puts God central in Jesus. It puts um, God's goals in Jesus central. And so you need to love your wife with a God-centered love. Thirdly, a husband's love for his wife is to be holiness-promoting. Holiness-promoting. Verses 26 and 27. Let me read those to you. Um, You are to love your wife. Verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now watch this. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, here's the main idea. You could tell I was emphasizing some things there, right? Okay. Um, I want you to think really carefully with me about verses 26 and 27. I think um, I, I think it's, it's easy for men to go to specifics in verses 26 and 27 in ways that actually will lead you beyond Paul's words for you as a husband, the man. Here's the general idea that I think by implication is being emphasized in verses 26 and 27. A husband's wife should undergo some kind of growth in holiness as a result of a husband's Christ-centered and God-centered love. I think that's the idea. Generally speaking, the general big idea. It's the undeniable, I think, point. Um, but let me tell you some specific points that I think you should completely avoid. Okay? Here's a specific point to avoid. That you have the direct role of sanctifying your wife before God. Look at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. Who's the he? Jesus. Who's the her? The church. He's not talking about you. He's not talking about me. What's it say next? Having cleansed her. Who's the the one doing the cleansing? Jesus. Who's the her? The church. How does he do that? By washing, by the washing of the water with the word. Who's doing this? Okay. Okay, you should avoid the kind of thinking that you, as a husband, have the direct role of sanctifying your wife. Meaning 
that you as a husband have the direct role of cleansing your wife. That you as a husband have the direct responsibility of washing your wife with the water of the word. That is not what this passage is saying. So, let me say again, so that you, you, you know, by the way, don't stop in verse 26, please. Keep going in verse 27, and you tell me how this is going to work out as a husband. J- just read it. That Christ might present who? To whom? Okay, so apply that in your marriage. Is God asking you to present your wife to yourself? I mean, it just gets crazy. And so you know what guys do? They don't do that in verse 27. They only take verse 26 and they only apply, I'm washing my wife with the water of the word. Well, why do you selectively stop there? Go to verse 27 because it's the same subject. Now, should a husband... Bring the word of God to bear on his wife? Absolutely. Do not use verse 26 to justify that. Because that is not you. Right? So even though it might be theologically something that we must do and are bound to do, verse 26 is not the justification for it. See, we we just want to even be careful, don't we? Even how we handle God's word in something like this. Because we show ourselves to be very arbitrary. That I'll stop at verse 26 because I ain't going at verse 27. Because that just doesn't make sense. So we want to stay away from those specifics. So again, what's the general idea? The unavoidable general implication is your Christ-centered love will be used by God somehow, some way, to bring about a sanctifying effect to your wife. But let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought you don't sanctify anybody in fact can I give you a couple of ideas here Um, is it a biblical idea that I as a believer sanctify or cleanse any other believer can you think of any other place where a believer sanctifies or cleanses another believer. Let me give you a couple of examples from with just with the word cleanse. In Mark 7 verse 4, the Pharisees and the Jews, Jesus said or Mark said, cleansed themselves ceremonially after being in the market. They cleansed themselves. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1, we cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, I cleanse myself from all of the things that are listed before verse 21. Make myself a pure vessel. James chapter 4, verse 8, we are to cleanse our hands and purify our own hearts when we are double-minded. But there is nothing in the New Testament on one believer sanctifying or cleansing another believer. Did you know that? But all of a sudden, that's what you're doing if you apply chapter 5, verse 26 of Ephesians to your role as a husband with your wife. And you might say, ah, but what about 1 Corinthians 7, 4? The husband of the unbelieving wife, she, he gets sanctified, right? What does that mean? 
he's in a better position to hear the gospel than he was before. Right? Be, remaining with the wife. And it's a believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse. It's not even the same category as Ephesians 5. Right? So, that's not Paul's point in verse 26 and 27, that you, as a husband, directly sanctify your wife. You just don't. But, an implication from it is, your wife is going to benefit in holiness somehow by being married to you when you love in a Christ-centered way. But it's not you who's doing it. Okay? Does that make sense? Do you have any questions? I, I don't want you to hear me saying that... Your wife's holiness is not important, or that you don't have a role or a concern in that. That's not my what I'm trying to bring a correction to. I'm trying to bring a correction to those words do not apply to you; they apply to Jesus. Josh. What about what do you think about First Peter three? Uh, one, oh, maybe you found. Yeah. That's similar to 1 Corinthians 7, which is um, the unbelieving spouse, in this case an unbelieving husband, is in a much better place in staying with the believing wife because he has a, a continual, relentlessly, hopefully good, influence from the gospel on her. But that is, that is not the kind of sanctifying that you'll see and hear guys talking about in terms of you know, washing their wife with the water of the word. It, it is, if you take the, the specifics in, in Ephesians 5 verse 26 and you apply them to a believing husband that he is the one cleansing his wife, you have just moved beyond Paul's words in Ephesians 5.26 and you've actually just moved beyond the New Testament's teaching about what one believer does for another person. You don't cleanse anybody. Can you be an influence on them? Yes, of course. Can you cleanse? Are you called to cleanse yourself? Yes, you're called to do that. Um, but I think 1 Peter 3, 1 and 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 14 is it, I think, would be in the same category of a, of a believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse saying, look, do everything you can to keep that one in the marriage so that they are in a better position of, for hearing the gospel. That is a place of sanctification, but that, let's, let's not pretend that that's the same thing that many people think is going on in Ephesians 5.26. Do you understand? So your wife needs to have her holiness promoted, and it will be through your love, but not directly through you, because the verses there in 26 and 27 are talking about Jesus and the church. Okay? Any other thoughts or questions? It's the just as, and it, like, it's exactly like. Yeah. It's kind of, it reminds me of the thing in Acts where, it, where Peter's saying this is what happened, what Joel was talking about. Almost sounds like it's exactly the same, but it's not. Yeah. The well, the, the question is, the question, and that's a great observation, Jeff, is, is how far does the just as go? The just as um, certainly... Um, Here's what Paul does in this passage. Paul starts. Paul has been laboring to show the, some some very deep and radical realities about what Christ has done to form the church, and the church is at the pinnacle of of what God is doing in this world right now. He's the church is is God's tool in the world, and so then he gets to marriage, and he just gets out the husband's role in verse twenty four or in verse 25, 
And the next thing you know, he's just digressing into Jesus and the church again. And so, yes, are we to love our wives how? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. But he just keeps going. And so the choice you have to make as you interpret is the just as goes all the way to the end of the clause of everything that he's saying. Which means, therefore, that we must sanctify our wives, we must cleanse our wives, that we do it by the washing of the water with the word with our wives, and that I am also to present to myself my wife in all of her glory. She'll have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I mean, this just gets insane. It gets outside of the teaching of the New Testament. It does. And most guys who do this, who have this whole idea of, I I wash my wife with the water of the word, they stop at verse 26 and they won't let themselves get to verse 27 because they know it's insane in verse 27. It just doesn't appear as insane in verse 26. And what I'm trying to say is it's just as faulty of an interpretation in verse 26 as it is in verse 27 because nothing changed. It's just the reason guys stop at verse 26 is just more convenient to. And again, hear me out. Does a husband have a responsibility to bring the word of God to bear on his wife? What is the answer to that? Yes. Yes. Does he do that from chapter 5, verse 26? No. That's Jesus. We do it because other teaching tells us that we should do this with all Christians, all believers. How much more so our lives. So I don't want to make a, a mountain out of a molehill, but I want you to interpret Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 correctly. Um, number four. A husband's wa- love for his wife is to be nurturing, absorbed. Verses 28 and 29. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. There it is. Just as Christ also does the church. Listen, your body doesn't feel um, dissatisfaction if you can help it, right? Isn't that the way you view your own physical body? Your body doesn't feel emptiness if you can help it. Your body doesn't feel hunger. It doesn't feel pain if you can help it. That's just the natural self-love that's in every single human being. No one ever hated his own flesh. Your body feels full. It feels satisfied if you can help it. That's the natural self-love every human has. And your wife, according to Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, is your own body. That is the kind of oneness that has come in marriage. Your wife is your own body. Your wife, therefore, should experience something similar in being married with you that your physical body experiences being inseparable from you. Okay? She should not feel um, like she's not full. She shouldn't feel like she's deprived, being deprived. She shouldn't feel like she's not being satisfied because you're neglecting her. You don't neglect your own body in that way. Your wife should feel spiritually full, spiritually satisfied, spiritually not neglected. Why? Because in marriage, she is you. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
He will, but but it, it, he even builds on that. He who loves his own wife is actually loving whom? Himself. That's a way of saying she is you. And that's the mystery of the oneness that Paul's going to get completely distracted by again here right after this. You know, this is the reason. He goes back to the Old Testament. For this reason, that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great. I'm not talking about marriage. Verse 32, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, Paul keeps getting distracted from the subject of marriage back to the, the church, the relationship of the body of Christ to Jesus. So, nurturing absorbed. Nurture your wife. Um... You might need to ask her some questions. Do you feel neglected by me? If you want to have a good day, you don't have to ask that question today. Number five. A husband's love for his wife must be husband-initiated. Here's the obvious from this, back up in verse 23. The husband is the what? The head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So let's, let's, let's apply this that way as well. How far does the just as go in that verse? Are you the savior of your wife's body? No, of course not. Right? I mean, we, so there's limits on the just as's here. Um, our propensity, however, in our marriage relationships is, is to do what? Is, is you and I will find ourselves, if we do not intentionally think about it, we will function as any other part of the body except the head in our marriage relationship. Um, the head is what leads the other parts of the body, the other members of the physical body. The head is what gives direction to the rest of the body. It gives guidance to the rest of the body. It gives initiative to the rest of the body. It gives leadership to. The head leads and all of the other parts of the body follow. When the head is functioning properly, it doesn't lead the other parts of the body into danger. When you're ahead, when you're thinking rightly, you don't think, hey hand, put your hand in the fire. You just don't do that because you know what it will do to your hand. And you don't want that. So when the head is functioning properly, it doesn't lead the other parts of the body into danger or into abuse. The head leads, the head loves, and it does it in a protective way. And the rest of the body is the better for it, right? And the same thing must be true in your marriage, guys. Your wife must benefit from your headship. She is a better woman because of the way you have led. She is protected from pain. She is protected from loss in, in all of the ways that you are able to do it. Uh, you cannot make her go through this broken, rebellious world without feeling some kind of loss. Right? Denny? We are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And in verse 33, uh, I can see where we're going to address that. Yeah. Um, the wife must see it, see to it that she respects her husband. So, is uh, in this case, the man is is uh, required to love his wife as Christ loved the church. So, how does the word respect? I guess how would you define respect? Because apparently, it's not it's not the same as love. 
Yeah, that's or for is her. It, or is it? That's that's for her, right? Right. And and the word is actually fear. She is to fear her husband. And uh, if you want, you can go to the, the, the message that we did on this. I, I remember having to give some very specific thought to. Uh, you can see the, the NAS has, and I don't, I don't know what the ESV does with verse 33, but uh, any English translation just has a really hard time translating fear as actually fear. Because I, I think in our English language, fear always has, for the most part, a negative connotation. Fear makes you run away from something. Fear makes you means that you're being bullied, intimidated. That's what in our English language it means. To assume that that's what is built into the Greek word and the Greek idea, and, the, and, the, and more important, the Christian idea here, uh, would be a bad her- hermeneutical interpreting mistake. Um, so she is to have a, a kind of fear for her husband that goes beyond what our language has. She is to have a fear that actually makes her like she like she probably like she fears Jesus. In the sense of uh, how do you fear Jesus, guys? You run from him? There is a way to have fear and want to get closer. Because you see what he is like. She should have that kind of, of, in that sense, I don't think respect is bad. But respect, in our language, also is a gutless word almost anymore. It's gutted of the real, it needs a little, it needs something injected into it here to mean just more than respect. I I respect that position. I don't agree. I think it's ridiculous. I respect it, though. No, it's not like that kind of respect. Um, You know, when you're afraid of something that, thing you're afraid of absolutely captures your attention. It, to me, it's that aspect. That's what I think of when I fear fear God, is that He absolutely captures my attention. Nothing else does. Just Him. Yeah. And Because um, I don't want the negative parts of fear, but that's the part of fear that I you know, it's better for me than think of respect or reverence or whatever, but Again, when I'm afraid of something, I, there's nothing but that thing that I'm afraid of. It's all consuming. Yeah. And and uh, this is a fear that is under the banner of, of worship. It is a fear that actually leads to worship. It's, it's a fear that doesn't hinder worship um, in regards to a, a believer under Christ. Um, it obviously is not that, in a sense, for a wife to worship her husband, but it's a it's a fear that draws her to him. So then, I want to get back to then your question that you had. State your question again. What was your thought on? Well, in in, uh, in we perceive the relationship of a husband and wife as somewhat equal. We're asked to love her, and she's commanded to respect us. So how is that? <laughs> how equal. Is the, uh, yeah. How is the love relationship? Compared to the respect <coughs> that comes back, and and uh, um, Jeff, I like that captures my attention because if there's something fearful in my life, whether it's good or whatever, I mean that's something that's always on his mind. So fear is not bad. Yeah. Well, it, the the same question could be asked in regards to what is said in in um, verse 22, where the, the carryover verb that's implied is, is to be subject to. 
okay, we're supposed to love our wives, and they just get to be subject to us? I mean, you know, one gets to love, and the other gets to submit. Great. Um, and it's not that at all, especially as you trace back up, you know, where submission reveals itself in the verses above that. Um, there's not a, a, a slavish being subject to one another in the fear of Christ in verse 21. Um, it's it's the idea of of just I'll humble myself under you, beside you, so that you benefit. I mean, again, this is where our words and our conception and our cultural setting really makes words. We have to be really careful about what words are. To be, we don't like the word submissive anymore. We don't like the word subject. Nobody should be subject. Everybody should be free. Everybody should be equal. And we should always make sure that we're lifting up others and, and leveling the playing field. And, and that is true. And before God, and this is this is a very important point, and it's one of our biblical convictions as a church is is um, the role of men and women. Um, look. A man and a woman are equal before God in all kinds of ways. Uh, a man is no worse a sinner and a rebel before God than a woman is. A man or a woman needs no greater, uh, doesn't need a greater amount of Christ's blood to redeem and cleanse than the other gender. Uh, both are equally in need of independence. Uh, and, and both are equally called to worship. Both are equally to obey. There's all kinds of equality at that level, right? That is not what Paul is trying to show here. What Paul is trying to say here is that there actually are different roles. There's spiritual equality between a man and a woman before God, but there is role differentiation before God. Just because we're all equal before God as sinners and as saints doesn't mean that we are all given the exact same role before God. That 50% of the time, the husband is the head, and the other 50% of the time, the wife is the head. Or 50% of the time, the wife is subject to the husband, so the other half, the, the husband needs to be subject to his wife. No, it's not like that at all. There needs to be specific, differentiated roles. There are distinctions in that. The greatest example of this, in an even more uh, profound way, is within the Trinity. Let me ask you a trick question. Uh, well, I won't ask you a trick question because it's stupid. Um, uh, is is uh, how do how do I say it? Um, who is more? I'll, I'll ask the dumb question. Who is more God, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Dumb question. They are all equally what? God. They all are. Did the Father go to the cross? No. Did the Holy Spirit send the Father? Well, wait a minute. What's going on here? You mean to tell me they have different roles? Well, then they can't all be God because they're doing different things. No, no, no. We fully accept and understand that the Son could actually say, my food is to not do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Well, does that mean he's less God? No, it means that he has a different role, that he placed himself in his humanity under the divine will of the Father. He placed his divine will as son under the divine will of the Father to carry out a role. And what did the Father do with that one who humbled himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross? What did he do with that one? He raised him up so he has a name above every name. 
I mean, there, there are different roles within the Godhead that they have, but they're equally God. One is not more God or less God than the other. Same thing on a human level. The wife is not more uh, sinful before God or re- better redeemed before God than the, than the husband, but boy, when it comes to roles, there are different roles that accent the kind of relationship that God wants to point out. Mark? Yeah, and and that that made me think of, of what else is going on is is marriage is itself not a not an ultimate target. It's not an ultimate end. It is there to point to something greater than what it is. A marriage relationship is to point to the greater relationship between Christ and the church. Um, and so, a, a a wife fearing or reverencing or Respecting her husband is to not ultimately make its own statement, but it is existing there to point to what? The way that the church would reverence Christ. A husband's self-giving love for his wife is not ultimately about the husband giving himself in love. It's to point to what? The way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So everything that we are, God has given... um, 
it's really an evidence of grace to, to a lost society that they would actually be able to, in a, in a marriage union between two believers, see something of the way that Jesus and the church relate to each other. Uh, you can't go to anything in Roman culture and find um, any expression of the way that the women are, are putting themselves forward in their day that, that represents this because all that sinners do, all that women do, and it's even in our culture, is, is they, they, they bring a distortion to the role of woman that uh, doesn't reflect anything beyond itself of what God is. Um, you have to look into the church to find that. And it, it's a woman who wants to actually be under a man in his leadership. And, and a man who wants to actually be over. But look how men take leadership and bring a distortion to it. Um, just authoritarianism. That's not Jesus. I'll tell you what authority is. It's when the Son of Man got up from the table and he took his outer garments off and he wrapped a towel around him and he went around and he did what all the other authoritarian knuckleheads at the table wouldn't do. He led and he showed his might and his power in his humble service of washing their feet. And if you think that's impressive, that's nothing compared to when he completely was stripped down and hung naked in public on a cross. That's leadership. That's leadership. That's headship. That's doing, that's thinking that I'm going to, I'm going to act first to protect my body. And boy, did he not only protect the body, he birthed the body and protects it through his blood. So we don't even want to look to the world for how men should lead. We look within the church, we look in the word of God, and we point beyond men and women and the husband and wife relationship and we see something great. So guys, no one else has the role of headship in your wife's life except you. Okay? Her dad is not her head anymore. Your dad is not her head. Okay? Your church is not her head. Your small group is not her head. Your small group leader is not her head. The elders of your church are not your wife's head. You are your wife's head, and you must initiate this love. This is what God is calling you to be. So Christ-centered love, God-centered love, holiness-promoting love, nurturing-absorbed love, and husband-initiated love. Okay? Number two, Roman numeral number two. This kind of love requires you to study your wife. you got to study two things. Was it something I said, Josh? <laughs> we'll take note, Josh is leaving. March 17th, 2012, Josh walked out. Make a note for the elder meeting coming up in March. This kind of love requires study. Number one, what do you have to study first? What do you think you'd have to study first? Yeah, you study where God desires your wife to be. That's what you need to study first. You need to know, first of all, what God desires your wife to be. Can I give you some questions? What does Scripture say about where God wants your wife to be just as a child of God? Just as a Christian woman? What does God's Word say about where God wants her to be just as a Christian woman? You need to know that. Where God wants another Christian to be. That needs to be your concern for your wife. Another question. As a Christian woman with a biblical role. Oh yeah, there's biblical roles that are different 
for women than for men. What does God's word say about the biblical role for her in the home and in the church? Uh, I need to study that. I need to know that. Because God forbid that I would lead in such a way that I'd actually lead her away from that. Wouldn't that be horrible? God actually had something else set up for her in a role as a in your home and in the church, but you led in such a way that you took her away from that? Wouldn't that be that'd be awful? As a wife, what does God call her to be? As a mother, what does Scripture call her to be? This is why I last year added the, the lesson on Titus 2 in build for the men. Because you need to know what God says a woman needs to be, a wife must be, what a, what a mother must be. You need to know that. You need to study that. Secondly then, study where your wife currently is. Number two, study where your wife currently is. Remember this, guys. Imprint this on your brain. Your wife is on a journey. She's in process. She's not like you. That You just, you just got it down now. And, and it's wired. She's just not like you. No, of course not. I mean, we need to rehearse to ourselves what we know to be true about ourselves concerning our wives. Um, rehearse to yourself that your wife is on a journey. And guess what? God has decided that you get to be the primary tool to help her make steps in that journey. Okay? And by the way, your primary role is not to announce to her every day that you're, she's not there yet. You're just not there yet, huh? No, your job is to say, we're going to take one more step today. Okay? You would kill somebody eventually if they said that to you. You would just end their life. Um, hopefully you're not close to death in your marriage. Um, so ask yourself some questions. Where is your wife currently just as a child of God? Where is she just as a Christian? Do you know where she's at currently just in her Christian life? You need to know that. Uh, you need to ask her questions. Where is your wife currently as a woman in her role at home and in the church? Does she understand those things? Does she know where the goal is? Does she know where she is aiming at? Uh, where is your wife currently just in her being a wife to you as being a mother. Okay, and so again, you being focused on God. This is you being God-centered, not husband-centered. You're thinking, where, where does God want my wife to be? Where must she be? And so you're going to help her recognize that she's in a transformation process. And your loving, Jesus-centered, cross-centered, God-centered Nurturing, absorbed, holiness-promoting love is going to help move her step by step by step by step on that journey. And the way you find this out is by asking her lots of questions, by studying her. So you need to study what God's Word says, and you need to study your wife. We study the Word of God, what God says about women, and we study our wives. And we're going to talk about that in number five. Let's go to number three here. This kind of love requires planning. First, don't be fooled, guys. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into what? Don't be fooled into thinking that this kind of love just happens. You put a Christian man with a Christian woman and bingo, this just happens. Don't be fooled. This kind of loving leadership 
that is Christ-centered, God-centered, holiness-promoting, nurturing-absorbed, etc., etc. That's complex. It's not impossible, but it's complex. And, and the goal for your wife is far too lofty for you to just assume that you will lovingly lead this way because you're alive today. I'm alive today, so of course I'll love my wife the way that she needs. Or because you've read your Bible for 20 days in a row, of course I'll do this. Or because, no, you're making an impact on the guys that you meet with outside of the home. You're making an impact with them, so of course I'm loving my wife the way. Now you can't assume this. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's just automatically happening. This kind of loving leadership requires discipline from you. It requires intentionality from you. Okay. Secondly, then, don't be foiled. So don't be fooled into thinking that it, this kind of love just happens. Don't be foiled either. You've got to plan, guys. You have to plan for this. I encourage you to try to pick a regular time to think about where God desires your wife to be and take that time then to plot practically how you and your Christ-centered, God-centered love, all of that husband-initiated love, how can you help make steps forward in that with your wife? Um, Lee Iacocca said years ago when he was the head of Chrysler and everything was going up for Chrysler, he said, if you aim at nothing, you will what? Hit it how many times? Every time. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Guys, if you aim at nothing in your relationship with your wife, guess what? You'll hit it every time. We have to plan for this. We have to plan. Guys, what else do you plan for in life? Do you plan plan for your work? Do you plan your schedule out for work? You know what we do? We even plan our exercise. We even plan our entertainment. We plan our vacations. But I think we're tempted to just let our husbanding happen. Or just, of course it's happening. Do you know what happens at work if we just let our work happen? We can get fired. We can get fired if we just let it happen. Don't let your husbanding just happen probably not going to be good. So don't be foiled. Plan. You've got to plan for this. Number four, this kind of love, actually, number four is where we're at. Yep. This kind of love gets practical across all categories of life. What I want to do is I want to run through these. These go really quick. I want to show you that there are just some, about 15 different arenas of life that you can bring your husband um, sacrificing love to bear on your wife. First, We've already been talking about this spiritually, biblically, theologically, with spiritual disciplines, with growth in godly character, growth in her service in the body of Christ, just in a spiritual dimension. This, this is what we've been talking about. But push pause, guys, in your marriage. Sacrifice some time. Slow down to just find out how she's doing. Some of those questions in the blue sheet will help you to do that, will help you to figure out where she's at. Ask questions about where she feels really strong in her walk with Christ. Ask her where she thinks she feels weak in her walk with Christ. Ask her, how, honey, how do you think that I can help you? I know I want to help you. I'm going to try to help you. I may not be helping you the way that you think would be the most helpful for you. How do you want me to help you? Honey, what are you reading? Do you know what your wife is reading in the Bible right now? 
Do you know where she's reading? Do you know what other books she's reading? Is there something else? She, so you could just be like, okay, yeah, I'll ask her and I'll know. But you, you need to know your wife well enough to go, huh, I wonder if that's the best thing for her to be reading right now. Based on what I know about where she's at, she's reading a lot in this area over here. I wonder if I could, I should make a suggestion that maybe she should read in this area because I see where she's at and I, I think I know where she needs to go. And so I'm going to help her go that way and I think this would be helpful. So, I mean, that's where we need to know our wives so well that we can say, hey, wouldn't we do that with each other? If you're meeting with a guy and a guy's reading all kinds of stuff on a, a, a corner of theology that's just really interesting to him and he's just being a knucklehead with his kids, what, what would you do with him? You'd say, well, maybe you should read this part of the Bible. Maybe you should read this book. We need to do that with our wives as well. Um, what is your wife praying for? Do you know? How is your wife dealing with her own sin? Do you know how your wife deals with her impatience towards you? I mean, you you can probably get a hint of something of what's going on there. But do you know how she's handling that before God? Number two, relationships with the children if you got them. So here's a, way, a place where you can love your wife. You can love your wife in her relationships with the children. Does she have any relationships with any of the kids that are tense or bumpy? You'll notice this. Obviously, you have to have more than one child to notice this. But you'll find that there will be some time, your wife will go through seasons where um, things will go really well with two out of the three. And that one, there's just something going on between mom and that one. There is something going on there. Okay, where do you think God would want those relationships to go? How can you as a husband lead and serve to get that relationship where it needs to be? Listen, what can you do? It should come across your mind that, oh my goodness, there's, a, there's some tension there. I am going to insert myself more, um, more intentionally into that little one's life. I'm going to meet with that one in a unique way that's going to bring a benefit for my wife. What can, how can I focus my relationship on that child in such a way that it's going to bring a blessing to my wife? Do you need to help your wife humble herself before one of your children and ask for forgiveness? You'll, you'll see this once in a while. Your wife's just like you. She's going to be stubborn sometimes. She's going to stand her ground. She's going to dig her heels in and she is not going to bow even though she might have spoken in a way that was really not helpful even sinful to your child. Do you need to help your wife humble herself? How do you like to be humbled? Whatever it is that you like to be humbled, go to your wife that way, help her out. What about number three, loving your wife in relationships with parents and in-laws? How many of you have just weird in-law relationships, parent relationships in your marriage? Hands up, honestly, don't be shy. Yeah, all four of you do. I, I must be the oddball. I don't know. And, and I tell you what, with, with divorce being so rampant everywhere, I mean, it is just weird. I mean, I've got my kids, my son, who's almost 10, still says to me, which grandpa did you grow up with? That happened when I was 17, when they divorced, 30 years ago. 
it's just there's just weird dynamics that go on and and your wife has relation she's in it she married you she gets all of that that you brought and you get everything that she brought but you're going to watch these relationships change over time with parents and in-laws do you need to step in and facilitate her relationship with somebody in the family do you need to become a better buffer between her and somebody else in the family do you need to protect her better are you in the way you just need to get out of the way between her and somebody in the family Um, be thinking in, in this direction you might need to help her to humble herself to seek her mom's forgiveness, her dad's forgiveness, um, your your mom's forgiveness. You can love your wife and friendships, her friendships, number four. Um, when your friendships with a, uh, with a with another guy like change over time and then you recognize like months later, huh, yeah, we haven't spent as much time together. Well, how many of you are like that? Like, yeah, there's something there about, you know, it doesn't like stop you dead in your tracks. Have you noticed that your wife isn't like that? <laughs> She'll think months, like something's not right. And, and it's like on her mind all day. Something's not right with somebody. Relationships changing. You and I might be more like, uh, yeah, that, that happens. Relationships change over time. Some grow stronger and some grow weaker. That's what happens. Our wives don't just view it that way. They don't just view it as, well, that's objective fact about relationships. You might need to help your wife think through why relationships are changing. Um, Relationships coming and going, that's more troubling to a wife than it is to you and me. Are you aware of that? Are you paying attention to that in your wife? Does your wife get to have time with other women in the church? Especially if you have um, kids and a lot of her life is absorbed with that. Are you serving your wife and loving your wife in such a way that she has freedom to leave the household to go meet with other ladies? Remember what Titus 2 says about your wife in relationship to other women? Does your wife have any friendship evangelism that's going on with somebody else? Do you know that? Is she, who's she sharing the gospel with? Number five, loving your wife in her fears, disappointments, hopes, dreams, etc. These are change over the years. When, you, when you're young, I mean, you've got ideas and dreams and goals and hopes. And then you've been married 20 plus years, 14 years. And things change. She starts to think, huh, the things I really wanted haven't come to fruition yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe those were wrong things that I wanted. You, you need to walk with your wife through those things, those changes. Your wife over the years, um, she's going to mature in some really wonderful ways. And then there's going to be some ways that she's going to have setbacks that will surprise you. I, I didn't see that coming with her. I, I wouldn't have thought that she'd wrestle with that now, of all things. Listen, she's like you. Um So her fears, her disappointments, her hopes, her dreams will will change. You you need to be paying attention. Ask her what she's worried about. Ask her what she's hoping for. You can love your wife, number six, and her temptations. These change too over time. When you're younger, you have a certain set of temptations. As you get older, there are some new temptations that come in, and some temptations just stay the same all the way through your life. You need to know what her unique temptations are. 
Um, do you know how your wife is standing on the, the grace realities and propositions of the gospel as she faces her temptations? Do you know how she's doing? Do you know how she's depending on the gospel in the face of her temptations? Or are you just sure she's doing it? Yeah, she's doing it. She's a Christian. Oh, don't make that assumption. Okay? And you know what can be really helpful for your wife? One of the best ways you can love your wife, there's going to be times when your wife is going to be just so discouraged about the way she's handling sin in her life, um, the way that she's responding to sin in her life. And she's just going to, because she's a, she's a sensitive, godly woman, she's just going to at times just feel completely undone. You know what she, here's a way that you can love your wife. Help her to feel your confidence in the power of the gospel. Help her to feel your confidence, not in her, but help her to feel your confidence that the gospel is that powerful. The grace realities in the gospel of what God said he did with you, with Christ at the cross, with you at Christ at his empty tomb. What God said he did with you, honey, I trust that. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Paul wanted the Philippians to feel his confidence in what God had done. His confidence wasn't in them. His confidence was in God. Your wife, you can love your wife by helping her feel your confidence in the gospel. You can love your wife in number seven in conversations. Listen, when you come home and you are in your post-day coma and your wife initiates conversation with you, how was your day? Fine. That doesn't serve your wife well. Okay, I'm speaking for myself. I don't know what you guys do, but when I have one-word answers like that, fine, good, Okay. My wife looks at me like, what are you doing here? Why did you even come home? Um, that's not helpful for your wife. It doesn't serve your wife. You know what I, I find? I have to continually die to my conversational, my conversation style. I have to die to my conversation style. Um, plead with God to give you a heart for her conversation style. One of the things that um, I try to do, if I can give you a tip that um, will help you, is even though you don't have to, it may not even be appropriate for you to tell every bit of detail to your wife of what happened in a day. Okay? Um, but one of the things you can do is act throughout your day like your wife was supposed to be there with you at what it is you're doing. A meeting, a lunch appointment, a job you're doing, whatever it is. Act like your wife was supposed to be there, but, but something came up and she couldn't be there. Because what that will do is that'll make you think, oh, she'll want to know how it went, and I'll, I'll need to tell her about it when I get home. And so it'll make you look at whatever it is you're doing. It can make you look at it through her eyes. What would she, she was supposed to be here. What would she be wanting to think about? And what would she want to know? What would be interesting to her in this moment? What would, what would engage her at this moment? And then when you get home, you're actually prepared. You're thinking, oh, that's funny, because I was thinking about my day with you in mind. Number one, she'll pass out after you say that. And you'll have to get her up and, and help her. And then the, your conversation will never be the same. Yeah. Yeah, a great conversation. Well, wasn't a conversation. Danny told me something yesterday morning. Um, we were talking about uh, the, the whole concept of not saying what's on your heart, what's on your mind, not talking about uh, what's 
boils down to, I don't want to tell anybody because what's going to come out of my mouth is I sin all day. And if I just say, good, then, then, I, then, then I don't have to tell anybody my sin. But if I start going through, well, this was bad and this was, oh, yeah. I, I totally blew it. I had an opportunity to express the gospel here. I didn't have an opportunity here to show patience that I didn't. And so that's, uh, I, I would tend to say, I would have said, I don't tell my wife about my day because I'm the man. I'm supposed to carry the burden. I'm not supposed to dump it on her. It's not her responsibility. That's not a lie. I don't tell her because what's going to come out of my mouth is I sin here and then I sin here. When, when you have a great day and, and God was evident through your whole day and what is how your day, who comes home and says, good, on that day? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Uh, Paul Tripp is really good on this stuff. Um, in Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands and in his uh, newer book, What Did You Expect on Marriage? I mean, guys, you and I um, are his primary instrument to use in our wife's life to bring um, grace to her. And she is God's primary tool to bring grace to you. So we approach one another as we come home as and thinking Okay, God, am I ready to step into this household? Because let's let's make a list. Tonight, before I go to bed, I'm going to sin against my wife. I'm not planning on it. I haven't plotted out exactly what it's going to be, but I just know I'm going to. I'm going to sin against my wife somehow. She's going to sin against me. Am I ready for that? Am I ready to bring to, to be? Um, God's tool of grace, will I respond to her sin against me in such a way that will bring grace to the moment? When, when I sin against her, will I be evident, will, will grace be enough on my mind that I'll be gracious and, and humble myself to her and, 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 and seek forgiveness right away? Um, if, if you came home and, let, let's, let's turn the tables on like what you said, Mark, from me. Let's say you came home and your wife said, honey, all day long, I have just my I have just been sinning with my mouth against the kids. I, I just it's just everywhere. It's just like I don't know what it is. I don't want to, but I find myself trying to make a, a correction. And next thing I know, I'm just set off by them, and, and and I speak with unkind. How would you respond to your wife? Would you crush her? Oh my goodness, no, you wouldn't. You would think, oh dear woman, how. Let's pray. How can I help you? Um, which child do I need to beat first? Um, but you would come and you would be... That's a joke. Please hear the laughter. Um, you, you, would, you would come alongside and try to care for her. Same thing with her. If you came home and you just said, "Let me," I'm just going to tell you how it was today. What is she going to do? But you have to be in the right frame of mind towards one another as, as broken sinners who are in need of the other to help you walk um, in grace. Um, conversations. I don't know if you do this or not. For some of you guys, it might be um, you, you just need to shut the TV off. You need to shut the computer off. Um, we, don't, I don't, I don't, we don't try to even have conversations with that stuff going on. But I find that what I do that drives Kim crazy... It, uh, I, it's hard for me to sit still. <laughs> um, 
and we'll be sitting talking and I'll think of, uh, I don't want her to stop the conversation, but I'll get up and I'll like go get some water or whatever. And she'll be like, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm listening. No, I'm right here. Come sit down. And I'll be like, oh, so there's a way I, I need to die to myself in conversation. I can sit and wait. I'm not starving. I'm not dying of thirst. I can wait. It's just I'm thinking, I, I want to, oh, I can, I can go do that. I'm just not fully engaged like I need to be. Um, loving your wife, number eight, in dates and special occasions. Do you do things or go places that she likes? Do you know what she likes to do? What makes that certain place or activity that's special to her special? Why does she like that? Have you tried anything new? I've shared this before, but Kim and I, a couple years ago, started intentionally plotting together. Let's do something we've never done before. Because this whole going out to eat dinner and then like walking through Barnes and Nobles and sitting down next to each other and looking at books or whatever together is just like we've been doing this for about a decade. I think we've got that down. So let's go try something else. And so we started going to places where they had like live music playing, jazz or whatever. And my goodness, that was just so much fun together. Um, but it never crossed my mind to do that because um, I just like, you know, I, I do what I do and I just plot. I just keep going. Uh, we need to be spontaneous. We need to plan, do some new things and surprise our wives. You can love your wife that way. Number nine, loving your wife in finances. Finances. Does your wife feel safe? Does she feel protected, nurtured, treasured under your management of finances? I'll be, I'll be transparent with you guys. The other day, we, we've um, readjusted our budget and apportioned some things out. We're trying it a couple months to see how it works, and gas prices have gone like that, and we're not even close in our gas budget. And so I have, for two months, tried to help her, instead of just adding money to it, say... Well, let's try to drive less. And she's thinking, I don't run a bunch of just erroneous errands. I just, I'm just picking your children up from school. Um, and over a period of weeks, it, it just wore her out. And it came out in a conversation with, in tears the other day. And I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I've, that's what I would do. And I asked you to do what I would do. I would find a way to... Can you drive my car? My car is the smaller one. It gets better gas mileage. Why don't you try taking that one? Um, and so just, you know, just little things, ways that we can care for our wives, love them better. Uh, one of the things that we did together um, a couple years ago is we read a book together on finances uh, just so that we could kind of find out where we thought differently. And we, we were able to align ourselves by just reading a book together on that. It was really helpful. Um, you can love your wife in meal times. Meal times. Let me tell you our first meal time together. Uh, in, in once we got back to our apartment after our um, uh, after our honeymoon, she I went back to work. I can't, she was home all day and she'd been working on her first meal at home, and she was so excited. She grew up in a family that meal time was was a destination to arrive at. There was five kids and. Her mom labored every day to make that a special time when they were all together. I grew up in a family where the, the dinner table was like the most it was the quietest place. It was the most awkward place to be. I had been a college student for about five or six years. Worked lived two more years out on my own. 
dinner was something that you did with the TV on, uh, at the drive-thru on the way home in the car, and here we are, we sit down together, I finally get in there, she sets it down, we pray, and I look down, I just started eating, and I didn't look up until I was done. And I looked up, and she's just watching me. She hasn't touched anything. It's just all her food sitting there. She's just looking at me like, you are an idiot. And that was just, I was approaching even just mealtime with, well, this is what you do. This is what I do. Doesn't everybody do it this way? Evidently not. Um, so do you know how she, what she thinks about even dinner time? Do you know what her expectations are there? Um, you probably should know that. What can you guys do together to make mealtime even better? How about your honey-do list? You can love your wife in your honey-do list. Specifically plan for whatever is reasonable that week. Um, and guys, whatever you promise to do, do it. So don't just casually, oh yeah, yeah, I'll do it all. No, you won't. I never do. So be reasonable. Pick out what you are able to do. And, and I don't know, sometimes you'll, your wife will think of something that needs to be done. And she'll really want it done, and she'll think that she may not have full knowledge on really all that it will take for you to do, where you have to go first to get all the stuff that you need for it, how long it will take. She won't have known all that, and so her expectation is that it's on the list like all the other things. You can just do it, and it'll be done, right? You might have to actually help her think through some of that. Um, And guys, if you said you're going to do something and you didn't do it, um, just humble yourself and ask for her forgiveness. But you can love her even in your honey-do lists. Number 12, loving your wife and cleaning up after yourself. Does your wife follow you around like you're one of the kids or the dog? Does she have to do that with you? Should she have to do that with you? Here's something that you can do. Um, I found this to be so funny. I would be with the kids playing in the living room or something, and we just the whole living room was just dismantled. And she'll say, all right, before, you guys, before we go to bed, let's pick up the living room. And so we would kind of scramble around, put cushions back and everything, and, and put stuff away, and then we'd leave the room, and I would come back a few minutes later, and she'd be in the living room picking up the living room <laughs> that we just picked up. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And then I'm all offended, right? Because now she's calling into question what I did. Um, and so she's like, I asked you just to pick things up, and like, and what did I not do? And so this... This was really helpful. I actually one time said to my wife, we had, this had happened, we were in a room, and we were standing there, and I asked her, I said, when you look at this room, tell me what you see. And she told me what she saw. And I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't even pay attention to those things. So what had to happen is I had to adjust the way that I even saw a room, the kitchen. When you see the kitchen, honey, what do you see? that needs to be done because I'm pretty sure it's not what I see. Okay? So don't just do things the way that you think they should be done. If she's the one who's going to be the one in the kitchen again, don't leave a mess for her. Serve her. Sacrifice yourself. Love her. Make it a blessing to her to have you at home. Um, Number 13, loving your wife in your own appearance. Have you ever noticed... um, Now look, we all know that when we have a day off, you don't have to put a tie on. Right, And when you're home and it's just going to be you at home doing whatever, I'm not suggesting that there's a dress code that you need to have. But here's what I think we need to be really careful with. If your wife notices every day of the week 
that you get up and you're thinking about where you're going and you align your dress and your own personal appearance, your own personal aroma with where you're going. But then weekend after weekend or evening after evening, day off after day off, you're at home and you do something completely different. That you just roll yourself out of bed. And if she sees that, what conclusions could she come to? He thinks about it, everybody else and what, how he should look when he goes there. And when he's with me at home, he's not thinking at all. And I think that's something for us to be aware of and watch out for. What would your wife actually think if she got up, saw you, and you were like all cleaned up? And like, What would she say to you? What would be the question she would ask you? Where are you going? Ah, something's wrong. That's not right. That's not right. And then you say to her, I'm here with you today. And then you pick her up off the floor, get her to the couch... We need those kind of moments, guys, where we can bring our wife back to um, consciousness. Um, how about um, number 14, loving your wife and waking up and getting to bed. Do you guys know how your wife likes to go to bed? And here's what I mean by that. Here's, I'm going to give you a, a, a window into our, our, our family. For Kim to go to bed knowing that there are dishes in the sink, that the house is not picked up, that there's still laundry that hadn't been put away, she'll go to to bed and she'll lay there and she'll think about it. And it'll bother her. I have no trouble with any of that. I lay down and just the world goes away. I don't know what happens, but that's not her. And so, do help your wife. Serve your wife. Love your wife in the sense that you want her when she goes to bed to be able to just rest. To, to, to not have any, if, if there are some things that you can take off of her mind before she goes to bed, why wouldn't you do that? Serve her in that way. Um, do you know how your wife likes to get up in the morning? Do you just assume that when the little ones go crashing through the door and, Mommy, 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 that do you, is it just your assumption that she likes that? It might not be the, what, what she prefers, what, what blesses her. What would bless her? Um, maybe maybe you should ask her, how do you like to wake up? And if you can do something to help her wake up that way, why not do it? Lastly, number 15, and you can come up with a lot of areas, but loving your wife in romance and sex. I promise we're not getting graphic here. Um, but I'll tell you this, guys, and you know this. She does not necessarily equate romance with sex. Okay? Let me let me ask you just some basic questions. In your mind, should romance always lead to sex? In your mind. What does romance exist for? Right? That's the way a guy thinks. Okay? In your mind, ask yourself this. Is sex romantic? Yeah, of course. You, Ask your wife those same questions. And you might find there's a little bit of difference of thinking about sex and romance. Um, Don't make any assumptions here. I I forget, I think it might be C.J. Mahaney in his book on sex, romance, and the glory of God. It's a little book. It's a a must read. 
I think he said, I think he's the one who said this. I got this quote. I can't remember. I'll have to track it down. But he says, touch her mind, her hopes, her fears, her desires before you touch her body. That's your goal. That's our goal each day. Touch her mind, touch her hopes, her fears, her desires before you ever touch her body. And you may need to have a conversation about sex together. Um, And guys, please do not operate on what you have put in your mind from time past that you wish you didn't put in your mind. Don't, Don't slot your wife into that category. She's different, okay? Protect her from that. Lastly, number five. This kind of love must be joy-filled. Can I, joy-filled. Yeah, let, let me give you just a, a, a couple of quick run-throughs here. I, I want you to see this because this is so important. Go to John 15. This is the last night that Jesus is with his apostles. It is the night before the cross. The cross is weighing heavily upon him. John 15, verse 11. And one of the things that is on his mind as the cross is just around the corner is joy. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy... Wait a minute. You're about to be crucified. That's right. I have joy. The night before I'm going to die, I have joy. And I'm writing... uh, I'm speaking these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see... He's in the shadow of the cross and joy is on his mind. Go to chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Why? Because I've been crucified. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. He's concerned that they would have joy. It'll be turned into joy at the resurrection. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. And when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice. No one will take your joy away from you. He's telling that, them that before, as he's just leading up in the hours before the cross. Chapter 17. Or drop down to verse 24 of John 16. Until now I've asked, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, Father. Jesus is praying these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's thinking about his joy before the cross where he gave himself in love, right? Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. We are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the author, the perfecter of faith. And watch this. Who, for the joy set before him, what? Endured the cross. That does not mean that he viewed the cross as joy. But he had joy set before him and he endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So as Jesus is anticipating the cross, as he's about to love in the sense that he is going to give himself for us, joy is on his mind. If your wife were to read those passages and she were to read her Bible, she would come to the conclusion that when Jesus loved me, he wasn't absent of joy. One of the things I think we need to be careful of is that when our wives see us loving her, she better be able to see what? Christ, but, but, but even our joy. 
It is a joy to sacrifice myself for you. She sees that it's a joy in Jesus to sacrifice for her. If we are to love like Jesus, let's do it with joy. She shouldn't see that it's just, you know, honey, it's just really hard to love you. (laughs) That would be a bummer, right? All right. Any questions? Any thoughts on that? Any clarification you want? Mike. If, uh, if my wife's dreading stuff that's not being done on the house, if she's meditating on that, if she's if it was keeping her up at night, those kinds of things, could that be could that be maybe some sin in her heart? Making idol, making the house an idol, making cleanliness an idol, that kind of thing? Sure. Could, could I could help her with that? I could help her uh-huh. see that as maybe a lust or an idol? Yeah, um, I, I probably wouldn't start there. Right. <laughs> Where would be the place to start? No. Um, if, if, if I'm actually not... I'll be honest with you. I told my wife, my wife asked me two days in a row this week, hey, did you do? Hey, did you do? And I came home twice that day. And two days in a row I said, I forgot both days. And the look on her face was, she was frustrated. Now, that's not even a biblical word. She was angry. She was, that was, that was troubling to her. I don't want to, at that point, look at her and say, "Why? Well, I see that you're not responding to sin well. I'm the cause. The place to start is me. Okay, so, yes, there's, there's always, when you, whenever you have two sinners together and, and you've got that kind of a dynamic going on, it, it, there's usually going to be a two-pronged approach to it. Um, one party's sin and the other party's sin. And what we know with the gospel is, is where we should start, with what Jesus said, to not be so concerned about the, the, the speck in another eye when there's a plank in my own. And so we want to start really by, by addressing what am I doing that's contributing to this? What have I done? Um, what can I do? Um, I, I just need to express repentance by, by doing what's on the list so that she doesn't do that. If, if you did that, and it took care of the problem. Um, wow, that's great. If you did that and still saw that there were, you know, she's, you know, hanging on to some things in ways maybe she shouldn't, then, then I would probably have that conversation too. But it always starts with me. It always starts with you and how we're contributing to that. I mean, and that's, you know, you, you know, I don't know. I'm not in your home. I don't see the dynamic. But that's where we need to start is with ourselves first and then move to the spouse. That's a, that's a great question. I mean, we all, we're all there. <laughs> um, I'm there this week. So. Yeah. Um, we read Dave Ramsey's book. Um, not uh, the... Uh, university not the what's his one that he's kind of written to the broader market 
Total Money Makeover. Is that what it's called? Any of you read that? Total Money Makeover. That is a, um, that's just kind of a shot in the arm, you can get out of debt this way approach. It's not the only way. It's like any finance book. I mean, there's going to be things in it you're going to really like. There's going to be things in it you're going to go, that's not the way I'd do it. But um, the point is, it's a, it, tools like that are, are helpful. Um, Nick O'Neill, uh, who's Crown merged with, Crown merged with Burkett, is that right? Larry Burkett? And whoever the guy is, he's got, he gave me a book recently. I, I don't remember um, the title, I haven't read it, but. Um, you know, I think if you if you ask around in the church, anybody who's been through Crown or has read some other books, ask Mark Cronwald. Um, he's read some. And I know he's recently read um, Ramsey's book as well. Um, but those are good things to do to help kind of flesh out what are some differences of thinking between your wife and you on finances and saving and spending, planning, things like that, debt. Any other thoughts? Comments? All right. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Um, your homework from last time. Um, is it the green sheet? I see a couple green sheets. Uh, y- you can uh, put your name on that if you want. You can also keep it anonymous because there are some things there. You might feel freer. If you felt freer to write some things and not have your name attached to it, that is A-OK. Uh, you can do that. But I'd love for you to hand that in. You can, If you want, you can... Drop it off at whatever table you normally meet at. You can put it right on the middle table here, and we'll make sure that we get those. Um, and I think that'll be it for today. Okay? So let's close in prayer. All right? Father in heaven, we would plead with you. We would plead with you to help us to, to love our wives like your son has loved us with his self-giving love at the cross. And um, I pray, God, that for these young men here who um, have not married yet, I pray, Lord, that you would work in them in such a way that they would even begin to grow in a desire to show that self-giving love to others that they live with so that um, they would be the right kind of man when it comes time to give that kind of love to a wife I pray for even those young single men with us, Lord, that you would help them to focus on the gospel of Jesus, um, his giving of himself and love at the cross, because that's what fuels them to be able to love a woman well. It's not by having a lot of dating relationships and having a lot of relationships prior with women, getting a lot of track experience that gives a man the ability to love a wife well. It's the gospel that gives a man the ability to love a wife well. Lord, I pray that you would help us who have been married to come back to the cross more frequently, the love of Jesus there. Help us to be a blessing to our wives even today as we go home. And uh, may our wives be better women of God, better daughters of God, because we um, were thoughtful in how to love them. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. We'll um, get out of here maybe a few early today. How about that? Thanks so much for coming.